I like to see a nice new coat of paint on something. How about you? Maybe it's a, a wall in your house or a whole room. Maybe the whole house. Nice, fresh coat of paint. Looks good. It's clean. It's neat. How about a, uh, a boat? When I was about 11 years old, my dad showed up after work one night, honked the horn. That meant my brother and I were supposed to hightail it out there quickly. And in the back of his pickup truck were two old wooden rowboats. One was stacked inside the other. So my dad said, get these unloaded. So we unload them, and we got the, the wooden sawhorses out from behind the garage, and we set them up in the yard, and we didn't know what dad was doing. He always was bringing stuff home. But uh, got it all done, and he stood back, and he said, all right, guys, these boats are for you. My brother and I kind of looked at these old wooden boats. They were all, they looked bad. They really looked bad. And we're like, what? And so he said, yeah, you guys, I want you to work on these boats. And I want you to clean them up, sand them. I want you to paint them. Took us into his shop and he showed us where the paint was and all the supplies. And he said, when you're all done, we're going to sell these boats. We're going to put an ad in the newspaper and we're going to sell these boats. And you guys get to keep all the money. Well, now the idea seemed a lot better. We got to keep the money. Okay, that was pretty cool. And so he got us all lined out, and then he left, and right away a problem developed. You see, I was just a little bit jealous. I looked over at my brother's boat, and his boat was bigger than my boat. I don't like that. So I was thinking, what can I do? I thought, I know. I'm going to finish my boat before my brother gets his done. And so I got to work. And the next day I got home from school and I went right out there and I got the stuff. And I was so enthusiastic and excited. I got sanding on that boat. And that enthusiasm lasted for about an hour. <laughs> and then it became tiresome and old and hard. And I was sweating and the sandpaper was running out and my knuckles were getting bloody. And I, I thought, this is not very fun. I don't really like this. What can I do? And I thought, I know. I'm just going to get right to the painting. And so I got the paint out, and I started slapping that nice paint on that boat. And it was looking really nice until it started to dry. And then the parts that I didn't sand and were flaking off started to flake off anyway, even with the new paint right over them. And pretty soon, that freshly painted boat didn't look very nice at all. And I kind of thought, as I was thinking about this sermon, this message today. You know, that's kind of how it is with us. When we come to Christ, sometimes we just slap a, a paint of fresh coat over our old selves. And we call it good. We come to church and we sing the songs. And we say, God bless you. And we think we're pretty good. But then somebody comes and rubs us the wrong way. Or they say something that we don't like. Or they hold a view that we don't agree with. And, and suddenly, the new coat of paint comes chipping and peeling off. And that old person underneath rises to the surface. And we attack back. Well, Paul was telling us in this second half of chapter 4 of Ephesians that we need to let Christ sand us down to bare wood in order to cover us with his way of thinking and acting. 
You see, he's in the business of complete restoration, an overhaul, a rebuild. The Lord wants to build into us a new character so that we then can participate in building the family of God, his church. In Ephesians 4, verses 25 through 32, we're going to learn what it means to put off the old self and put on the new self. And Paul sets this up with a series of, of contrasts or examples that show us some basic expectations for members of the family of God. That's you and that's me. And so... We're going to read the text right now, and I'd like to do something a little different than we normally do. I'd like to read this text together, out loud. Now, this was originally written as a letter to a local church, just like us. And so I'm going to invite you right now to go ahead and stand, if you're able. And we're going to read aloud the text. It's going to be on the screen, and I'd just like you to read it with me. Today's Bible text, Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 25. Therefore... Laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer. But rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Please be seated. Now before we dive in to begin looking at these examples that Paul gives in the text, I want you to notice... Uh, just uh, three features that are common in, in all of them. The first thing that I want you to see is that each example concerns our relationship with one another. The Christian life is never meant for us to live independent. By design, God's design, by his command, we are called to live out our new lives in Christ in relationship to God and to one another. The second thing that we want to notice is that each one of these contrasts has a negative prohibition. Don't do this. Followed by a corresponding positive command. Instead, do this. So it's not enough just to say, I put off the old self, slap some paint on there. No. We have to put on the new self. Because we have a new nature, we need to stop doing what characterized the old nature and start practicing what is characteristic of the new nature. And, and then third, each of these examples has a reason for the command that's either stated or it's implied. Paul gives theological reasons for this new behavior that is to, to characterize our new life in Christ. 
And, and so as we do these things, we are actively involved in building up the body of Christ. That is the church. So let's go ahead and look at our text. And I want you to notice the very first word there in verse 25, therefore. Now I learned in Bible college, all that smart Bible learning. One of the things I learned was when it says therefore, you always ask, what's the therefore, therefore? All right? Five years of Bible college, I learned that. <laughs> and so when we see that word, it, it ties together what has been said before with what's coming. And so in the first half of this chapter, which we didn't have time to read, Paul has outlined just the, the importance of our unity and the faith and what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. And then he concludes that section by saying, put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God and has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. And because of all that, therefore, because of this truth, church, Here's what it looks like to act and live and be in the new self. So now let's go ahead and look at these contrasts that Paul has for us. And I've kind of put some titles to each one of them. The first one is, replace falsehood with truth-telling. That sounds good, doesn't it? Get rid of falsehood. We're to put off falsehood. The, the Greek word for falsehood, that, that false word is pseudos. We get the word pseudo, you know, like fake, not real. It's pseudo. Paul's words would maybe be kind of startling to his original audience, the Ephesians. You see, lying was pretty commonplace in Greek culture. It was just an accepted part of their culture that most people were not honest. And, and so when Paul writes to the Ephesian church, and he writes to some of these former Christians, the former non-Christians who are now followers, they're, they're converts to Jesus, one of the problems is they brought their lying with them. And they brought it right into the church. So Paul makes it clear that lying belongs with the old nature, not the new nature. And so he says, get rid of it. Don't do it. Put it off. He clearly believes and understands that this was a dominant characteristic of the old self. Now, if we think about it, lying is not only an issue in the in the New Testament Ephesian church. Lying's an issue in our day as well, isn't it? Lying, deception, falsehood, intentional misstatements. All of these things are common in our culture. And sadly, yes, sometimes even within the church. And brothers and sisters, this ought not to be. And so... Paul give, then gives his positive command. What are we supposed to do instead of bringing falsehoods in? We're supposed to speak the truth. Speak the truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. Christians of all people ought to be known as a people of the truth. Our word should be our bond. And what reason does Paul give for that? That's in the third part of verse 25. Now, the greatest reason, of course... To replace falsehood with truth-telling is that lying is a sin against God. You mean, I mean, that's one of the big ten, right? The Ten Commandments. Don't bear false witness. Don't lie. But that's not what Paul brings up here. What does he say? He says, don't lie. Don't put on falsehood. Because it's a sin against the body of Christ. Look at how he says it there. I love it. We are members of one another. What does it mean to be a member 
of the local church. Well, we think of membership as, you know, a position or rights and responsibilities and all those kinds of things. But membership, to be a member means we belong to each other. We are interconnected. And when we bring lying, falsehood, misconceptions into the body of Christ, it brings damage, dysfunction to the body. And so we must be people that speak truthfully to one another so that we might build up the family of God. Then Paul goes on to his next contrast. Contrast number two, I'm calling this, replace anger with peace. Replace anger with peace. Doesn't the word peace just sound good? Peace. Say it with me. Peace. Take a deep breath. Let it out and then say peace. Let's try that. Peace. It it feels good, doesn't it? And anger. Anger is not a good word, is it? You hear that word anger and it, it already makes you feel uncomfortable, doesn't it? And it should. It should because anger doesn't belong in the body of Christ. Now, Paul starts this off kind of, kind of funny, though. In verse 26, he says, be angry. Well, wait a minute. We're not supposed, to, not supposed to, we don't be angry, but that's what it says, right? Be angry, and yet do not sin. Now, there is a kind of anger that is good, and it's righteous. There's a time to be angry. We should be righteously angry about falsehoods, about false teaching. We should be righteously angry about uh, injustice in our, in our culture, in our world. We should be righteously angry, but let's be honest, all right? Most of the anger that we deal with in our life, it's not righteous anger. We might like to pretend it is. We might like to justify our unrighteous anger by saying, oh, it's really righteous anger because I'm righteous for a cause, But most of our anger is personal anger. Our anger is sinful, and we need to just recognize that. And it comes from this basic presupposition. Life's all about me. If life's all about me, then I'm going to be angry a lot, because a lot of people are going to tick me off. We get angry because we don't get our way. Or we get angry because our pride is injured. Or we get angry because we want revenge. We get angry because somebody has a different opinion of something than I do, and I'm right and they're wrong, and so I'm angry. And one of the problems with this kind of unrighteous anger is that we become, not just angry, but we become the victims of our own anger. I want you to listen to this little quote. This is from a theologian, Frederick Buchner. Listen to what he says. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you're giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Oh my goodness. 
I love that picture language that he has there. Anger eats us up. It destroys us from the inside out. And when we bring it in to God's family or our own family or the workplace or wherever we might be, when we bring that anger with us, it brings destruction. And so Paul then has his reason. His reason for this command of be angry and yet do not sin. He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. His point is that we're not to allow our anger to simmer. We're not to maintain our anger because festering anger leads to bitterness and outbursts and slander and malice and anger is dangerous and it becomes the foothold to many other sins. This is the motivation that Paul gives us in this passage. Don't give the devil an opportunity. He says this because clearly the emotion of anger so often leads to so many other sins. And so folks, I just want to say this. If you are living with anger in your soul, if you have allowed anger to go unresolved for over a day, if you have archived your anger for any number of previous incidents in which you were hurt or offended or annoyed or ticked off, then brothers and sisters, you have opened the door of your heart for the enemy. It's like you've set out a welcome mat for the devil himself to take up residence in your soul, in your mind, and in your heart. You've prepared a guest room for the author of destruction. And no matter how attractive he looks or how reasonable his arguments sound, be assured of this. He will steal, kill, and destroy your life. And he will do great damage to those around you. And so may we replace our anger, the anger in our heart, in our minds, in our souls, with the peace, the peace that only comes through knowing Jesus. The peace that allows us to remain in control of our emotions despite the difficult circumstances and people in our life. Will hard times come? You bet they will. Will difficult people be around you? Absolutely. Will you choose to walk in peace or to respond in anger? May we be people of peace. Let's go on to that third contrast. In verse 28, replace stealing with honest work. And I like this example because it's a great contrast that pictures the total reversal that occurs when a person comes to Christ. The stealer turns into the giver. Isn't that a great picture? And so Paul, again, begins with a negative prohibition. He who steals must steal no longer. Now, again, we can justify a lot and we can say, oh, I don't steal, I'm not a a robber, a thief, I don't do those kinds of things. But, you know, every culture has trouble with thievery, with stealing. And ours is no different. I found this research I thought was really interesting. Uh, this is a long thing, I'm not going to take time to read it. But uh, it was 
scientific research that, that talked about um, stealing in the workplace. And, and the bottom line is this. It says that 8 billion, that's with a B, folks, 8 billion dollars of inventory is stolen every year from stores, department stores, chain stores, grocery stores. $8 billion. And most of that, well over 60% of that, is stolen by the employees themselves. $16 million a day is ripped off by folks who go to work and steal from their employers. We steal things that aren't ours. We steal time that belongs to the employer because we're getting paid. We steal time that belongs to another person. We even steal recognition that's due to others when we take it for ourselves. We're called to stop stealing. And instead do what? The positive command in the second part of verse 28. But rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good. So Paul then gives the reason. So that he will have something to share with the one who has need. And so instead of stealing as followers of Jesus Christ, we're called to work hard. To do honest work, not just for ourselves, but to demonstrate God's love by having extra to give away. I hope that we all can see that we have a joyful responsibility to one another in the kingdom of God. If we see a brother or sister in need, the first step is not to run to the preacher or the elders and say, hey, you guys should fix that. The first step is for us to say, how can I meet this need? What do I have to share? What can I do? The first step is for us to be generous and cheerful givers to our brothers and sisters. God does not call us to have a hoarding, selfish attitude towards our wealth and our possessions If we do, then we fail to understand that all we have is given to us by God. And an attachment to things and money and stuff should never be what defines us. Rather, we are to enjoy the fruit of our labor. That's great. Enjoy what you have. God has given it to you. But just know that what God has given you has been given to be a tool to bless others. And by the way, I I just want to say I am thankful to be a part of a church that is marked and known by their generosity. I mentioned earlier in the announcement time, stop giving money. How often often does somebody from the staff have to come up and say, don't give any more money? Isn't that cool? Over and over again, when we present needs, particularly needs beyond the walls of this building in our community, this church steps up and gives generously. Thank you for doing that. May we continue to excel in that area. Let's look at the the fourth contrast that Paul makes. His fourth example moves from action, from what we do to what we say. And this is going to be in verse 29. I'm calling this, replace words that destroy with words that build. In verse 29, Paul says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Now, the word unwholesome, um, when, when I was a kid, the, the popular bread was Wonder Bread. I don't even know if that's still around. That white bread, Wonder Bread. But one of the things that the commercials always said is it's wholesome. 
wholesome. Whenever I see that word, I think about Wonder Bread. But here's what the word unwholesome means. It means, uh, it was often used in the first century to refer to spoiled fish or rotten fruit. So get that picture and that scent in your mind, okay? Rotten fish, spoiled fruit. All right? But it also can be used to describe the stones of a building that are crumbling. And so here's the picture, folks. When we speak unwholesome words, they are words that are worthless, that stink, that are rotten, and they cause brokenness in others, and they lead those who hear it to think about worthless things. You know, the old adage that grandma taught you is true. If you can't say anything nice about someone, what? Don't say anything at all. Grandma was right. But once more, Paul gives us a healthy alternative. He says, let everything you say be uh, good, or how does he say it, uh, for the edification. For the, that means words that build up. Words that are helpful. So that your words might be graceful, might give grace. To those who hear them. And so instead of speaking words that tear others down, we're called to speak words that build them up, words that, that encourage and don't discourage, words that make people hope and not despair. Now here's where we get off track sometimes. We get pretty feeling pretty good about ourselves because we say, oh, you know, I don't speak unwholesome words. I don't I don't cuss. I don't say those big seven words that can't be said on TV. Although they, now they can. If you watch Netflix or HBO, you know, they say whatever they want, right? It's full of unwholesome words. But we automatically think those are the unwholesome words. And they are. I'm not advocating it's okay to say those. Absolutely not. But here's what we do. Christian unwholesome words, right? What do we do? We couch it in prayer requests. Oh, you better pray about sister. Uh, here's what's going on. And what are we doing? We're gossiping. Or we say, hey, let me tell you something about brother so-and-so. We're talking behind his back. That's slander. These are unwholesome words, folks. This is much more than just having a potty mouth. All right? And what does Paul say the motivation for not speaking unwholesome words is? He says in verse 30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Folks, that's our identity. We are sealed by God's Holy Spirit. We belong to Him. And when we use this mouth that He's given us, and this mind that He's given us, and this heart that He's given us, and when we use it, in unwholesome ways, it grieves his Holy Spirit. It breaks the heart of God to see his children attack one another. And so when we gossip, or when we slander, we grieve God's Holy Spirit because we are attacking the members of the body of Christ. We grieve the Holy Spirit of God when we talk about others, Instead of going to them directly when we have a concern or a hurt or when we disagree. 
And so may our words be words that bring healing and restoration, not hurt and destruction. And then the last contrast. Paul concludes his series here of family building examples in verse 31 by listing just a whole series of sweeping changes of our character. We don't even have time to look at all of these, but uh, we're going to put it all under the category of replacing, replacing harshness with kindness. Replacing harshness with kindness. I uh, found this little story I thought I liked. It says, a woman testified to the transformation in her life that had resulted from her conversion experience. She declared, I'm so glad I got religion. I have an uncle I used to hate so much that I vowed I'd never go to his funeral. But now, why, I'd be happy to go to his funeral. (laughs) Okay, that is not the sweeping change that Paul's talking about here, all right? Paul says, all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice must be put away. There's no room for these attitudes in the heart of God's people. We cannot be bitter in our relationships, bitter in our marriages. We can't be bitter towards our kids or our parents or our employers. When we hold on to bitterness, we get angry. We begin to clamor. Clamor means loud noise. You ever get mad and slam the door? Smash the pot and pan together, whatever it might be? That's clamor. Folks, when we carry those attitudes, it's not right. There's no room for bitterness in our hearts when we see God's grace and forgiveness. So what do we do? What do we do to avoid these things? Paul says, instead, instead of letting it be all about you and letting those negative emotions fuel one another, what do we do? Instead, be kind to one another. Be tender-hearted. Do good to one another. You know, it's shocking, but sometimes we do more good to strangers than we do towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. Sometimes we do more good towards our co-workers than we do to our spouse. How can this be? We're called to display kindness and compassion and forgiveness. That is what the new self looks like. Those should be the leading characteristic traits of our life. We are never justified in our unrighteous behavior. That is the thinking of a darkened, futile, ignorant mind. The new self will not. It will choose not to harbor bitterness and ill will. The new self will choose to instead show love, kindness, goodness, and compassion. And how do we do all this? Well, that last, that last phrase. Forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. That's the motivator, folks. God had the compassion and kindness to forgive you of your sins and your violations. God doesn't blow you up when you make a mistake. God doesn't slander you when you sin. God doesn't harbor malice to you when you show disregard for his ways. 
God is still kind and still compassionate and still desirous for you to turn, to repent, and to pursue the path He set out for you. It's hard. It's hard. But the renewed mind learns to do these things by remembering Jesus. Remember how he suffered for you. Is that what we did when we took communion together today? We remember how he forgives us. We remember our own brokenness and our own sin and our own callous disregard and our own ignorance and our own purposeful rebellion. Remember all those things. And remember that God in Christ has forgiven all of that because of the blood of Jesus. How then can we be anything but kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving one another? It is what we must do. It is the natural response of a person who has been renewed in their thinking. May God help us each one of us who wear the name of Christ, to live as those who have been renewed and remodeled and refurbished and rebuilt by the good news of Jesus for the very purpose of building up the family of God.